The stories in this book have been told and retold, cherished and revered by literally billions of people over thousands of years. People have devoted their entire lives to studying this book. There are hundreds of thousands of commentaries on it. And many people believe that this book had to have been written by God. The Torah, what's so special about it? Why is it so mesmerizing? And how has it managed to capture the human imagination for millennia? I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at Ikar in Los Angeles, and together we're going to study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. Someone must have slipped something into my drink. I'm reading my Torah late one night, and suddenly the letters start to run backwards. Here we are in Parshat Balotcha, wandering through the desert, and actually a lot of weird stuff starts happening in our Parsha. We have a scene where Moses asks God to kill him. We see God fly into a rage and stuff the Israelites' mouths with quail meat until it comes out of their nostrils. Random people start spouting prophecies in the camp. But there, in the midst of all that madness, as my eyes move from verse to verse, they suddenly stumble into a random letter that seems out of place. It's a nun, the Hebrew letter with the N sound, but it's standing there on its own, hovering there, strangely alone, and a little bigger than the rest of the letters. And it's flipped backwards. And then, two lines later, there's another one. Am I hallucinating? I rub my eyes and look again. Still there. Then I remember, oh, yeah, I, I see these every year. And this isn't a misprint. This is in any edition of the Torah you look at. Two backwards nuns that look sort of like two brackets. In fact, you get the sense that they're meant to serve kind of like brackets. And the two verses they're bracketing are these famous lines. Vayhi bin Soaron vayomer Moshe when the ark would travel, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered and may your foes flee before you. You might recognize this verse because we use it in shul in the Torah service when we take the Torah out of the ark. And then when we put it back, we recite the next line. And when it rested, he would say, Return, O Lord, the tens of thousands of Israel. So these are the verses that are bracketed off by the floating backward nuns. Now, these symbols are totally unique. The Torah has some extra large letters and some extra small ones, and it has some words highlighted with dots on the top. But these inverted nuns are the only ones in the whole Torah though they do also appear in one of the Psalms. Now, I've said this before on this podcast, I, I just love the idea that the Torah communicates messages not only through its words, but also with the occasional formatting anomaly. So, I was immediately obsessed with these weird backward letters. What are they doing here? And, and what's so special about the verses they're bracketing? Rashi has an answer. Asalo simaniot, 
God made notations before and after these verses in order to let you know that these verses are not in the right place. So then why are they written here? In order to separate between two tragedies. As it says in the Talmud. So Rashi says that these verses were meant to be written elsewhere, but were airlifted out and dropped in here in order to shield us from the pain of having to read two terrible events in a row, one right after the other. And what are the two tragedies? Well, if we turn to the passage in the Talmud that Rashi is citing in Masechet Shabbat, it goes on to tell us that just before these verses, they left the mountain of God, Vayisu Mehar Hashem, which is tragic because they were departing from the place of God's revelation. And then, right after these verses, we read that the people complained bitterly against the Eternal. And their blatant ingratitude is a tragedy in itself. So the point of these interrupting verses is just to break up the depressing flow of events and to keep us from having to read one great disappointment after another. But then the Talmud goes on to offer another understanding of these two lines sandwiched between the backward letters. And this is actually the wildest interpretation of all. These, the Talmud says, are considered a separate book of the Torah on their own. Sefer Chashuvhu Bifneatzmo. And so, there are seven books of the Torah. Shiva Sifre Torah. Seven books of the Torah? And here we thought there were only five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But according to this new division, everything in Numbers before these two lines is one book, and everything after them is another book. And then, and this is so strange, these two little verses, all by themselves, are somehow supposed to constitute a whole book. Well, there you have it, folks. The shortest book ever written. A book that only takes five seconds to read. Okay, so let me just say for the record, I love the idea of a teeny tiny little micro book. It's so cool, but come on, seriously? How can we have a book with only two sentences? I mean, what does that even mean? Well, to start with, we can imagine the attraction of having seven books of the Torah. I mean, seven is a big number in Judaism. Seven days of creation, seven years in the agricultural cycle. How perfect would it be to also have seven books in the Torah? But I'm, I'm sorry, that's not enough of a reason to take two lines and call them a book. There's got to be something about these verses that's important enough to merit that status. So my favorite commentator, the Kliakar, is struggling with that same question, but he puts the problem in the language of commandments. He says, if this notion of these verses being a book seems strange to you, because the essential function of the Torah is giving us commandments, and this book has no commandments, then I will answer, uh, for my part, and say that this can be called a book of its own, because it deals with the commandment 
to be fruitful and multiply. Because this is the commandment that the world depends on and the one which causes the divine presence to dwell in the world. Hmm. Well, I, I wouldn't have guessed this from the reading the verses themselves, but apparently the Kliakar is basing his association with reproduction here on the phrase, the tens of thousands of Israel. As if this verse is telling us indirectly to create tens of thousands of new Israelites and thus fulfill the first commandment, the one given in the Garden of Eden, to be fruitful and multiply. Well, certainly an interesting attempt to give some greater meaning to these two lines, but I'm not sure the emphasis on making babies really does enough to make them seem book-worthy. But Rabbi Chaim ibn Attar, the Orachayim, has an interpretation of these verses that may just be grand enough to merit a separate book of the Torah. This great 18th century Moroccan commentator gives us an incredible reading that is distinctly Kabbalistic and cloaked in a bit of mystery. These verses can be explained through words that were recorded in various places. The reason for Israel's journey through the desert was to sift through the sparks of holiness which have been captured. Now, he's being coy about his source here, recorded in various places, he says. But this classic imagery is taken from the cosmology of the greatest figure of Jewish mysticism, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, the Arizal. Now, I won't be able to do it any justice here, but the basic concept is that during the process of the world's formation, divine light emanated forth and, and poured into vessels. But the vessels weren't strong enough to hold the light and they shattered. The shards of those broken vessels then scattered and fell, but they were still holding sparks of light. The world we live in then is incomplete, full of broken pieces, but animated by sparks of light. Our job is to free these sparks from their shells which we do through the performance of the divine commandments, and thereby fix the world. In fact, the phrase tikkun olam, fixing the world, which today most Jews use as a euphemism for social justice, was actually first popularized in this more mystical framework. Okay, back to our little book. So how does the Orachayim read all of this far-out mystical cosmology into these verses that seem to just be about traveling through the desert? Well, let's see. This phrase, he says, when the ark would travel, refers to when the ark would go out into the world and all the sparks of holiness would attach themselves to it. And as the sparks were sifted out, the shells would break off and scatter, which is what the phrase, arise, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, refers to. The enemies are the broken shards holding the sparks of light. So, the traveling of the ark is a metaphor for moving through the world, gathering sparks of holiness, and separating them from their broken vessels. And then the resting of the ark, what's that about? So he continues, For when God rests in a particular place, this tells you that this is a place where the sparks of holiness have not yet been sifted out, and God must stop there 
to gather them. Okay. And finally, the phrase, return, O Lord, the tens of thousands. Perush, the explanation, he says, is that the sparks of holiness return and are gathered together. So the movement of the ark, according to this interpretation, is actually the acting out of the whole cosmic drama of repairing the world, surveying the universe to uncover hidden sparks of light and collect them to return them to their source, thereby reunifying God and creation. Now, I don't pretend for a minute to understand all of this. And, of course, you may not buy this interpretation, but I will say this for the Orachayim. His reading of the verses does an impressive job of explaining how we could think of them as a whole book. Because embedded in these two little lines is the entire process through which the universe moves, expanding and contracting, rupturing and seeking resolution. And also our vital role in bringing that process to a favorable conclusion. And if that were the case, then actually the earlier piece we looked at from the Kliakar would fit in nicely. Remember, he claimed that be fruitful and multiply, reproduction, was at the core of these two lines. It seemed like a strange suggestion then. But if this little book is about the movement of the forces of existence, then our place in that flow is well represented by the reproductive rumbling of the life force, the jet that propels us along and pushes us forward in our journey through the universe. Forward, pause, return. Forward, pause, return. The arc is moving. The universe is moving. We are moving. Back and forth, back and forth in and out, in and out. It's as if everything is breathing together in syncopation, all in the same rhythm. And the Torah attempts to describe this rhythm, or perhaps even sets the pace. This little two-line book of the Torah is like a brief musical notation for that rhythm. Here's another recording from earlier in our Parsha, briefer still, of that same beat. By the word of God they rested, and by the word of God they traveled. Stop. Go. Stop. Go. Pulse. 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 The universe is alive. Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom, and our theme song is Pitrouli by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already? If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ecar.org and donate or Venmo us at ecarla. That's I K A R L A. Thanks a lot, and see you next week. Music.